Waiting, hoping, praying. Creation held its breath for the arrival of a rescuer, but the eager anticipation of the elite wouldn't expect the arrival of this kingdom coming. One that wouldn't intensify the ironclad, but instead strike the status quo. A movement meant for more than men, re-envisioning the recipients of the kingdom offer. But this greater beauty battered, which should have amazed, offended. A gift meant to receive, refused, betrayed, snuffed out, destroyed. But for only three days, forgiveness fired back at finality agitating the ash and shaking loose what had for a time completely covered the landscape of the kingdom. Then once and for all, the Risen One rose up and made right, redeemed and restored the radiance of His glory for all eternity and ours. Welcome everybody to the weekend. We're in the third message of our series, Arrival. Now, before we begin, just a couple of things. First of all, we're going to be celebrating communion at the end of the message. So if you don't have your bread and your juice out, now would be a great time to get that ready, okay? Then I also want to give a shout out to all of our students and kids who are watching. Hey, thanks for joining me every weekend. And I want to start incorporating you more into the message. So here's one of the ways we can do it. I want to challenge everybody from the eighth grade under, as young as you go, to keep track of how many times in this message I say the word good or goodness. Total it up, and at the end of the message, I'd love for you to send me an email. Now, here's what I need from you. Just send me the count, how many times you think I say good or goodness. Give me your name and your address. And what I mean by that is your physical address, where you live. And so for the younger kids, mom and dad help them out, but don't help them count, all right? And then if you'll send that to pastordale at wooddale.org, pastordale at wooddale.org, I'm going to send you something in the mail that I think you're going to enjoy. If anybody actually gets the exact number, well, something extra special for you as well. So here we go. For goodness sake, let's start. All right. We've been talking about a letter that Dr. Luke wrote his friend whose name was Theophilus. And Luke tells us that he wrote that letter in order that Theophilus could be certain, certain about who Jesus is, the Son of God, certain about why he came. He came to reconcile us to his Father by giving his life on the cross for each of us. And then to tell us what difference it makes. And the difference that it makes is it gives us eternal life and it gives us a purpose to live out in this life and so much to look forward to in the next life as well. And so just to review together a little bit, and I thank the folks at Bible Project who have allowed us to use some uh, pics that I want to share with you. We start with Luke in the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was born in a place called Bethlehem, and he was born into a manger, which if you think about it, is very humbling to think that the Son of God is born in a manger, a feeding trough in Bethlehem. But I think God is telling us something through the birth of his son in such humble means. What he's telling us is that Jesus didn't come for the high, the mighty, and the proud. No, he came for all people, and 
He really sought after those who felt like God didn't want them anymore, that they weren't good enough for God. Well, Luke takes us from the story about the birth of Jesus all the way to the Jordan River and to a guy by the name of John the Baptist. Now, John was out there baptizing people and telling them to repent for the kingdom of God. He told them that one was coming greater than him that who would baptize them in the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, John says, I'm not even worthy to tie the straps on his sandals. And somewhere along the line while he was doing that, all of a sudden, guess what? He saw Jesus standing there next to him. He said, Jesus, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. But Jesus says, said to him, John, just do this. Baptize me. Because I think it was a symbol of Jesus saying, I'm about to be baptized into suffering and death for all human beings in order that their sins might be forgiven. And so John baptized Jesus. And when Jesus came up out of the water, God spoke to him and said, you are my son, with you I am well pleased. Or literally, as N.T. Wright says, I'm very fond of you, is what the father said to his son. What a declaration. And I want you to know that God makes that same declaration about you and about me. He's very fond of us because of what Jesus has done for us. And so maybe after the message, you'll want to have a little discussion and ask each other, how do you feel knowing that that God is fond of you because of what Jesus did for you? Well, Jesus leaves that scene and he goes into the wilderness and there he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights and the devil comes to him and tempts him. But Jesus refutes the temptation of the evil one. Jesus speaks the truth and he says, I have come to submit myself to the will of God. And then Jesus leaves there and he goes to his hometown of Nazareth and he gets up in the synagogue and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah. And he gives a great proclamation when he does that. He speaks out and he says, you know, God has called me for a time such as this to give sight to the blind, to talk about this favored time of God's blessing coming to the people that I am the Messiah, I am the one who is bringing this good news and this good hope to set people free. And as he reads through that scroll in Isaiah and tells him about why he has come and what God is going to do, he then goes out and he literally begins to demonstrate the power of God at work in his life. So, for instance, he does what he says. He actually heals those who are blind and those who are deaf and those who are mute, who cannot speak. He unleashes his great power and people are in awe of what he is doing. In fact, Jesus also reaches out to those people who everybody thought God had no use for, like prostitutes, that he tells God will forgive you those, though others may want to stone you, or adulteresses, or thieves, or others. He says, God loves you. God is looking for you too. You matter to him as well. In fact, Jesus went so far to even reach out to a tax collector by the name of Levi. We know him as Matthew, and he also wrote a letter about Jesus called the Gospel of Matthew. And Jesus invited Matthew to join his team to make up the 12 disciples. 
In fact, as we keep reading about the life of Jesus, we find him at a fishing village called Capernaum in Galilee. And there he's recruiting all kinds of men to follow him, 12 all together. And what a ragtag group of rascals they were. I mean, some of the people that he invited to follow him were brothers, some were friends, but amazingly, some of them were even enemies. They didn't like each other. In fact, if you take a couple of them, for instance, Matthew, well, he worked for the Roman government before Jesus got a hold of him. And Simon the Zealot, he hated the Roman government, which raises the question, why would Jesus invite enemies to be his followers? That's because he wants us to see the life-transforming power of the gospel. He wants us to see how God takes people who are formerly enemies and he turns them into friends. And this is the power of the gospel at work. And it's a beautiful picture of what the church ought to be, what believers ought to be like in their families and at work and when they're together so that the world sees this life-transforming power. How is God changing your life? Maybe you want to talk about that a little later on. How is he changing your family? How is he changing your relationships? God wants to do a good work in your life. He wants to do a good work in his church that will draw people to himself. Well, after Jesus calls these men to follow him, he then takes them up a very high mountain. It's known as the Transfiguration. And up on that mountain, Jesus is transfigured in the sight of his followers, particularly three that he takes up with him. Peter, James, and John. As they witness this, there's no doubt now that indeed Jesus must be the Son of God. And God speaks there to all of them. He says, this is my beloved Son. And then he says, listen to him. Listen to him when he speaks to you. Are you a good listener? Sometimes I am, and I'll be honest with you, sometimes I am not. It's something I have to work at. But not everybody wanted to listen to who Jesus was, and they didn't want to listen to what he had to say. Those folks were known as the Pharisees, and they were an angry bunch. They kind of smirked at Jesus. They didn't like hearing what he really had to say. In fact, eventually they will plot to put Jesus to death. Now, why would anybody not love Jesus? Why would anybody want to see him die? After all, he was so gentle and so kind. He did so much good. Well, to answer that story, we're going to look at, or to answer that question, we're going to look at a story. It's one of his most famous stories, and that's the problem. I don't know about you, but when I know a story really well, I assume I know what it means. And this story has so many levels of depth to it. It's the story of the prodigal son. Or as N.T. Wright says, we should probably call it the story of the running father. Or maybe we should call it the story of the curmudgeon elder brother. Maybe you can decide later on what to call it. But this famous story is very important for us to take a look at. Because it reveals to us why these men hated Jesus so much. And it also is a bit of a zinger. You say, what in the world is a zinger? I looked up the, de the, the definition of the dictionary. 
A zinger is uh, an expression to use when we experience kind of some shock or some awe. When somebody kind of pokes you and you're like startled by it. You're going to find that this story is going to poke you a little bit. Might make you a little bit uncomfortable. I'll tell you why in just a few moments. But uh, let's get the setting in mind. The setting is described for us in Luke chapter 15. So Luke chapter 15, Luke tells us, Who was in the crowd that day when Jesus told his famous story? Beginning verse 1, it says, Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. Other translations say that they would often draw near to Jesus to hear him teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus told them this story. Now Jesus begins his story. We know that there are three characters who are involved in the story. There is a father in the story. There is a younger brother in the story. And there is the older brother in the story. Now the younger brother comes to his father one day. And he says to him, I wish you were dead. Well, not literally. But he does come to his father and he says to him, I want you to give me my share of the inheritance. Now, when Jesus says that, you and I have to understand culturally that the people who are listening to him, those notorious sinners, as well as the Pharisees, would have done a little bit of a gasp, like, because what Jesus is suggesting is so counterculture. You just wouldn't do that. And the expectation is that if a son ever did that to his father, that the son was worthy of being stoned. And if not stoned, kicked out of the village because to offend the father is to offend the village. Now what's amazing about this dad is that the dad says, okay, now think about what the father must do. He must sell part of the family farm in order to get the proceeds to his son so his son has the cash inheritance, which hurts the father in a sense and hurts the elder son because now it's a bit of a loss of income for them as well. And so the son takes his money and he leaves town with probably no intention of ever coming back again. He goes to a far country and in that far country, he lives it up. He lives it up living a wild life wildlife, wine, and women. And as long as he had money, he had friends. He was having a great time until he ran out of money. And when he ran out of money, he ran out of friends. To make matters even worse, there was a terrible famine in the land. And so he ran out of food. And as a result of that, he was desperate to find work. So desperate that he takes a job feeding swine. Now, I am sure that the notorious sinners and the Pharisees did a very audible gasp. (gasps) I mean, this is a Jewish boy reduced down to feeding swine? I mean, you're supposed to, you know, you talk about social distancing these days. It wasn't six feet. It's like, don't even be in the same territory as those pigs. Now he's having to feed them. He's so hungry that he even is thinking about eating their food. All of a sudden, it says he came to himself, kind of like seeing himself in the puddle of mud if he could. 
in front of the swine. And he realizes, you know something? Back home, my father's servants have it so much better than me. They've got a place to, to stay. They get a salary and they, they get food to eat. And he decides that he's going to go home. And he's going to confess to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven. That's, that means I've sinned against God. And I have sinned against you. I don't expect you to take me back as a son, but would you please take me back as one of your hired hands? I have a question for you. I know it's a story that Jesus made up, but it's a story that includes real life. So imagine this with me. How, how often do you think the dad, put yourself in the father's place, look down that long lane leading up to the farmhouse and wondered if his son was coming home that day? I wonder how often he looked down that lane and prayed a simple prayer, bring him home, God, bring him home, bring him home. And one day when the father was looking down that lane, while his son was a far distance away, he could see him coming. Now, I don't know if it was the way his son walked or what it was, but he knew it was his son. And when he realized it was his son, he did the most undignified thing. He actually went running towards his son. Now, in those days and to this very day in the Middle East, men who are older do not run. They don't even walk fast. It's considered undignified. Something's really wrong if you do that. Now, I know the servants are watching this happen because they're going to show up. I don't know how many other people saw it happening. But perhaps in their minds was the idea, oh, I know why he's running there. He can't wait to get a hold of him and, you know, pound him for what he's done and what he's cost him and the shame and the inconvenience of it all. So you can imagine this father running toward his son, arms open wide. Is he getting ready to pummel him and punch his son? No, those are not arms of anger and hatred. Those are arms of unconditional love and forgiveness. And he swallows his son in a hug. I don't know how many times I've told this story, and every time it just blesses me because I realize that those are the arms of God that Jesus is describing. And he's describing for us the model of his ministry, that he came to model those very arms, that his arms are the arms of God. If you see me, you've seen the Father, he said. So every time he touched a leper, every time he held a child, those were the hands and the arms of God that were doing that. Imagine how that made those notorious sinners feel to, to hear that and to realize that. Imagine how it made the Pharisees feel to hear and to realize that. He called the servants. He said, put a robe on him. Put sandal on, sandals on his feet. Put the family ring on his finger. and Get that fatted calf out and uh, kill it and butcher it. And we are going to throw a party. I want the whole village to come because I want everybody to know that the son of mine who I thought was lost is found, who I thought was dead, is alive. The son was trying to mutter out his confession to his father. The father said to him, don't worry about it. I forgive you. You're forgiven. You're not going to be one of my hired hands. You are my son. You were missing. You were lost. You're found. I'm so glad you're home. I love you, son. And then what happens is God decides 
the Father to throw this huge party for his son, to celebrate him coming home. So you can kind of imagine the scene, if you want, with me of this home that's all lit up. And you've got this beautiful picture behind you of a feast that's going on. You know, a guy by the name of Ives Curtis, who is a Old Testament scholar, tells us that in the Middle Eastern culture, the ancient times, they would oftentimes have what they called a threshold sacrifice when a rebellious child would return home again. So this is in other cultures that this would be done. And that, that threshold sacrifice was to make atonement for what the child had done and to celebrate that they had come back home again. Now, I don't know if that's what Jesus had in mind when he told the story. But that's kind of the picture that we see taking place here. Jesus is about to make a threshold sacrifice for all of us to be able to come home, for all of us to enjoy a celebration what God does for us when he changes our lives. Even the angels in heaven, it says, celebrate when one sinner repents and comes back home again. Well, about this time, while the partying is going on, the villagers are checking in. The older brother shows up. So let's go back to the picture of the party again. And let me show you what's going on here. The older brother shows up and He's kind of looking at what's going on here, and he says, what, what's happening? What, what's taking place here? Why, why this party? Why all this joy and all this celebration? And he finds out that his brother is home. And instead of being happy and rejoicing about it, he's so angry about this. I mean, his inheritance is being spent to throw a party for this kid who's wasted all the money. What good did this boy ever do? doesn't deserve a party like this. He's angry about it. Now, why don't you step back from the story with me for just a moment. And I want you to imagine that you're looking around at the crowd that is listening to Jesus. I want you to look at the sinners with me for just a, for just a moment. What do you think is going through their minds? What kind of expressions do they have on their faces? They know that when Jesus is talking about the younger son, that he's talking about them. And I would think that at this point in the story, they got some big smiles on their face. Because they're just found out that no matter how notorious a sinner they've been, they can't, even be, they can't be any worse than the youngest son. And if the father loves him, if God loves him, God loves us too. And that's why they love hanging out and being close to Jesus. But the Pharisees, look at their faces for a minute. Remember those angry faces? They are really upset because they know that Jesus is saying that they're like the elder brother. And you know something? They're proud of it. They don't mind being compared to the elder brother because the elder brother had every right to be upset with his father for taking back the son. They were proud of him. They understood him. He had been faithful to his father all along. His father owed him a party. His, the, the father owed him an inheritance for how good that he had been and how good that they were. And it really frustrated them that Jesus was telling this story. 
They felt justified in their anger toward these sinners. They never did anything, these notorious sinners, they never did anything to earn or deserve God's love. What was Jesus' point in telling this whole story? It's probably what they're wondering. And I want to tell you. Here's his whole point. His whole point rests on this, that one's goodness can get in the way of God's grace. I mean, other than the fact that we see the love of the Father and the prodigal son coming home and being forgiven by the Father, the big lesson in this whole story is be careful with your goodness because your goodness can really get in the way of God's grace. And that's the zing. That's the ah poke. That's the aha. That's the uncomfortable thing that kind of settles in us. See, what can happen in your life and my life is our goodness can get in the way of God's grace working in us. But listen carefully, please. Our goodness can sometimes get in the way of God working in other people's lives too. It's a strange way to think, isn't it? That your goodness might be keeping somebody else from experiencing God's grace. Let me give you an example of what I mean. The Pharisees, they saw themselves as the watchdogs, the guardians of the law, and all their interpretations of the law. So they were like always looking for people to see if they were keeping or breaking the law. Put it another way, I want you to imagine for a moment a beautiful arboretum. Now, if you live here in Minnesota, you know about uh, the University of Minnesota Arboretum. It is gorgeous. It's closed right now, but it's beautiful. I want you to imagine this beautiful arboretum, flowers, ornamental shrubs, beautiful landscaping, beautiful trees. And you're hired. You're hired to keep the garbage and the litter out of it. And so every day you get up and your job is to pick up trash and garbage. And after a while, you start really looking around and you see people, you know, leaving their trash or their garbage around. You say, hey, 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 don't do that. Pick up that trash. Put it in the trash receptacle. Pick up that garbage. It's a beautiful arboretum. Don't mess with it like that. And as you keep doing that, eventually what happens is that's all you ever think about is trash and garbage. In fact, you get to the point where you're kind of a curmudgeon. You don't smile a whole lot. It's like you've lost sight of the beauty of the arboretum. You don't see the flowers. You don't see the ornamental shrubs. You don't see the trees. What you see is the garbage and the people leaving the garbage there. That's what the Pharisees are doing. They don't see the beauty of Jesus. They don't see the fact that Jesus is healing people and making them well and transforming their lives and delivering them from demon possession and seeing them go from being bad to good, so to speak. They don't see the change that he's bringing, the hope that he's bringing, the miracles that he's bringing, his words about the coming kingdom. No, no, no. All they can see is that Jesus is spending time with them, paying attention to human garbage, to trash. And they can't figure it out. Why he cares so much about people like that. But Jesus knew about those people. He knew that they were notorious sinners, but he also knew that they were broken people. 
People who probably thought and had certainly been made to feel to think this way by the Pharisees, that they were of no use to God anymore, that God had no use for them. They were hopeless. And to hear this message from Jesus that they mattered, that his arms were open wide just for them, oh my goodness, they were ready to come home. But I want you to listen to this for a moment. Jesus came with open arms, not just for those notorious sinners. He came with open arms to the Pharisees as well. God wanted them to come home just as much as he wanted those sinners to come home. And he wants you and me to come home. But what sin or what badness Were the Pharisees guilty of that they would need to come home? What on earth did they need to repent of? Listen carefully. What they needed to repent of was their goodness. Have you ever thought about that before? Has anybody ever said to you, hey, you need to repent to your goodness? But that's what they needed to do. Because their goodness was in the way of God's grace working in their life. Their goodness was in the way of God's grace working in other people's lives. Boy, is that convicting. That is so convicting to me. You see, there's a default thing in my life whereby I have a tendency, even as a Christian, to think that somehow in order to stay in God's good grace, I have to be really good. And so I'm always thinking about, you know, what I shouldn't do and what I should do. And am I doing enough? Am I good enough? And what happens is, as I focus in on that, then I think about other people who aren't as good as me. Who aren't picking up the trash, who aren't taking care of the garbage. And what happens is, I become kind of judgmental towards them. And all of a sudden, I realize, as my friend Larry Osborne says, I've become an accidental Pharisee. I'm looking down my nose at others. You see, it's not about badness and it's not about goodness. It's about newness. That's why Jesus says you must be born again. We must be somebody entirely different. Yes, be good, do good, and all that, but understand this, your relationship with God has nothing to do with that. I think about my friend Jack, who's now gone home to be with the Lord. I've told his story before. I won't tell the whole story again, but when I first met Jack, I didn't like Jack because all I could see what was, was what was bad about Jack. And I let that get in the way until finally I formed a relationship and I began to love this guy who eventually became like an uncle to my children and we became the closest of friends as though we were brothers. You see, I had to get past my goodness and past his badness. Realize what God had done for me and what God could do for him. Because we're all bad, so to speak. And our self-righteousness, our goodness, Jesus says, Paul says, is like filthy rags in God's sight. I need to be born again. I need to be made new. So, how about you? Is your goodness in the way of God's grace working in your life? 
is your goodness in the way of God's grace working in somebody else's life. A child, a parent, a friend, a co-worker, a neighbor. So how can I know? Let me give you three diagnostic questions. One question is, do you find that you resist God wanting to use your resources to help find those who are missing or who are lost? Do you struggle with giving toward missions? Giving towards ministries that are meaning to come alongside notorious sinners to show them God's grace and God's love. That might be an indication that your goodness is in the way and needs to be repented of. Second question goes like this. Do you avoid hanging out with people who could be labeled as bad? That one's convicting. You try to stay away from some people. You know, Jesus never stayed away from people. He was always drawn toward people and sometimes to quote the worst of people. Because he wanted them to know how much God loved them. How are people ever going to know that God loves them if we don't go to them? Because God came to us. And honestly, we're not better than anybody else. Maybe we don't have the rap sheet they have. But what makes us sinful is what we're born with, that sinful nature. No matter how it gets manifested. And the last question is this. Do you ever think God owes you because you've been so good? Do you ever feel like because of how you serve God, how you've tried to live for him, Somehow he owes you. You know where I see that coming up in my life is when I'm praying and I'm trying to get God to answer prayer. He's not answering prayer. He doesn't answer it the way I want. Sometimes in my inner person, I get frustrated with God and I start telling God all the ways I've tried to honor him and please him and I don't understand why he's not working in this situation. And all of a sudden I realize, oh my, my goodness has gotten in the way of God's grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray and ask you to help us realize your grace in our lives and be so humble and so appreciative of it, O oh God, that we go out of our way to show that grace to others. God, maybe we need to repent of our goodness. If so, we ask you to forgive us for counting on our own righteousness. We want to count on your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going to celebrate communion together. So why don't you go ahead and get out the bread or the juice that you have, whatever form you have it. And if one of you would just simply begin to distribute the bread around your family or your friends or if you're by yourself just go ahead and take that bread and know you're not by yourself Jesus is with you the Bible tells us that that bread that you have represents the body of Jesus which was given for us he gave his life for your life and my life that's grace it's not because we earned it it's not because we deserved it he said this is my body which is given for you. Take and eat it.
why don't you go ahead? You have that bread. Take it and eat it. Now, I don't know how you have the cup and the juice arranged, but the Bible tells us that that cup of juice represents the blood of Jesus that was shed for our sins. Jesus says the new covenant. He said this is a new covenant in my blood. And as often as you drink it, you're remembering what I've done for you. You're proclaiming my death and my sacrifice for you. Go ahead and take a drink of that juice. Father, we thank you for this meal. And I realize some of my friends may be taking it even now as I pray. That's okay. Or perhaps they'll choose to do it later, but I just pray that as they do so, they'll remember, oh God, that represents your grace in our lives. Thank you for loving us, though we don't deserve your love. Help us, oh God, to love others in the way that you've loved us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen, next weekend is Easter. And I want to encourage you to make sure you check out our Easter at Home, our Church at Home site on our, on our webpage and invite somebody to watch online, not just Easter, but Good Friday as well. We'll be celebrating communion again on Good Friday, so have your elements ready. But you know something, as difficult as it is in this season to have church, and to worship God, it feels very much like the book of Acts. And don't think that you're any less closer to God because you're doing it in your apartment or because you're doing it in your home. Listen, wherever you are as a believer, God is with you. We'll see you next weekend. God bless.